everyone, welcome back to the Everyday Warrior podcast. I had a great chat with Michael Leons, who is a triathlete and endurance coach, sports commentator, and brand owner of Compression Boots called Sports Recovery Systems. In this podcast, he shared with us his values for coaching and strategies for triathletes and athletes seeking peak performance. He talks about what to expect, how much work and time is involved in getting there. Mostly, he's an advocate of fitness for life and hopes that everyone stays healthy for as long as they can. Enjoy. I wanted to get started on the very beginning. What, your childhood? Maybe we yep. can start with that. Well, look, uh, growing up in New Zealand, um, five siblings and uh, mother, father. Uh, so there, there was a lot of outdoor activity. And so we lived in the South Island of New Zealand, probably not the warmest place to be in the winter, but also not the coldest place. So if you compare it to say somewhere like Canada or uh, Siberia, <laughs> definitely <laughs> much warmer. And um, so summer uh, in New Zealand, we had the benefit of long twilights because of where we are, we're 40, Christchurch being about 46 degrees south or thereabouts, 45 south. So you, have, you tend to have long twilights and um, long twilights means you can get up to a lot of stuff after school. So yeah. uh, after school activities, well during school even, um, school breaks were made up of any time the bell went for a break, there was a, uh, a quick cricket game or a game of touch rugby or a game of tackle rugby in the mud. Yeah. And then you go back to your classroom. Uh, muddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody seemed to mind back in those days. Uh, and, and then lunchtimes, it was the same again. And we used to bike to school and we used to bike home. Yeah. Uh, so there was, there was a whole, there was wall-to-wall activity. And the, the schools would throw you into different things like learning to swim and uh, athletics and, and so on. So you, you're dealing with kids at different ages and different levels of growth spurts. So, you know, uh, at, at certain times you, I found that my position in the rugby team was in the front row because okay. I was chubby. <laughs> and then when I went through a growth spurt and got a bit slimmer, I became, you know, someone at the back of the scrum or halfback or uh, I was never skilled enough to be on the wing, but um, never quick enough. But um, yeah, as time goes, went by, I got to try out a lot of different things. And um, then moving, moving through to high school, uh, I started to play golf at age 13. So what were you naturally good at? You were doing everything. Well, ball sports were the things I gravitated towards. So that was rugby, cricket, uh, being from the, the colonies. Um, not everyone understands cricket. Uh, uh, and uh, golf, squash, uh, not so much badminton, but uh, we, we played a little bit here and there. But squash was a good winter sport. Because it was indoors, it was and indoors yeah. yeah, you could escape the uh, escape the cold, and um, and then a, a little bit later in life, I uh, well, if, you, if we're talking about school, um, first of all, I got selected uh, by accident for um, the the school walking team, like the walking race. Okay, and the the reason why. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought the phys ed teacher hated me and somebody was injured and they couldn't do the race. And so he called me into his office and he was a man to be feared. Uh, and I thought I'd done something wrong and I was starting to think of what could it have been? Did he, could he have found out about that thing I did? Or, you know, all, all sorts of guilty thoughts were going through my mind and into his room and, and he said, uh, yeah, I want you to represent the school at the inter-schools uh, championships in the walking race. I said, oh, yeah, okay. And it's like, well, I better do some training. And I, I was, uh, so <laughs> it, walking, a walking race was not something I was, I'd really prepared for. I just did okay in the school race, but I think I got lapped three times at the school champs. <laughs> <laughs> but the background to this, uh, there, there was a, a compelling event for me in 1973. And that was meeting a coach called Arthur Lydiard. Okay. Now, Arthur Lydiard was voted coach of the century, last century. So if you look, at him, up, look him, him, him up, you'll see that a lot of his principles were uh, 
tested and proven over time. Okay. Uh, scientifically, now he was a, he was a coach of New Zealand middle distance runners in the late fifties and early sixties. Mm -hmm. So if you if you look back at that time and you look at the records and Olympic medals, it was New Zealand and New Zealanders that were the Kenyans of the day. Okay. So there was something about the way he trained people uh, that had a, a significant long-term results. So if we look at short-term expectations, like for example, the US university systems, their funding is dependent on results this quarter or this year. Right. So that's very difficult long-term to create uh, the sort of structure that the body needs to actually excel over time. When you say long-term, how long are you talking about? Well, when, when, when we're training athletes, we're looking at uh, um, one, one to three years. Okay. Depending on what their background's been, because they, they might be coming to us quite fresh. And, and as year one athletes, you do different things with a year one athlete versus a year three athlete. Mm -hmm. Some of that's their background, some of that's their body type, some of that's their body age. Right. Yeah, so uh, Arthur Lydiard had a, a compelling uh, effect on me when I when I met him and I met him at like a school assembly and we had a chance to talk to him individually it wasn't you know it wasn't a five-minute meeting or anything like that it was a quick chat 30 seconds to a minute but it, it had a profound effect on me and his his advice was to me was to do something every day okay and that became a, a mantra for me to do something every day and it's something that I've tried, I've endeavoured to carry throughout my life. And, um, and then I, as time went by and I learnt more about him and I studied him in, in recent years and looked back and I've read uh, his books and so on, I realised that his formula of 87, 9 and 4, mm -hmm. which are percentages, 87% strength endurance, 9% of threshold and 4% of VO2 max was a formula that's been proven to work over time. And back in the day, in the early 60s, when he was coaching world champion runners, science couldn't prove his theories. So first of all, he proved it on himself. Right. And he ran up to 200 kilometers a week himself. He, and he, was, a good, he was a good national runner without being an international champion. And of course, as a coach, you don't necessarily have to be the best athlete to be a great coach. Uh, so he proved a lot of things on himself. And he found that 200 kilometers as a runner is too much because your body just breaks down and it can't recover. And he, he came up with a sweet spot for his runners of 160K a week, okay. which is 100 miles in the, in the old language. Now, you're dealing, you're dealing with an environment in New Zealand where temperatures are way cooler than... Singapore oh, or definitely. in Asia. Mm. So your body's recovery because um, uh, your, your recovery is a lot quicker. And also the overhead on your cardiovascular system is a lot less as well because when we're training here in the humidity, our heart rate is naturally higher because it's trying to pump blood around to cool the body, the body quicker. It is uh, extremely high here. Yeah, yeah. And well, the other thing is the dew point, the evaporation point, which is called the dew point is a lot higher and your body cools through evaporation. So if you go and run in a cooler climate, you notice there's no sweat sitting on oh, your yeah, arms yeah. or on your, on your, very little on your face either, because it's evaporated. Mm. And that's a natural mechanism for cooling. Of course, you go out running here and you're dripping. <laughs> so you couldn't do 160 kilometers here then, would you? No. So would you have that? Uh, yeah, that is a formula. I would, I would say that some of it would need to be done indoors. Mm -hmm. And for the really good competitive runners, so not many people can cope with 160K yeah. for a start. And we're not talking age groupers. We're talking national champion uh, middle distance runners. But the formula was pretty much the same mm -hmm. for everyone from, say, back in the day, 3K was an Olympic event yep. through to marathon runners. We're all running about the same volume. Well, what differed was their speed work was a little different and that's that nine percent and that four percent that, okay. that we that we talked about but the biggest part of the triangle is the strength endurance 
and that involved running a lot of trails off-road uh, on terrain that was going to strengthen all your soft tissue okay. uh, we we going uh, you know climbing some pretty awesome uh, hills at the same time it's building your cardiovascular system it's building your your whole endurance system it's recruiting muscle fiber uh, it's increasing your pulmonary stroke in other words the amount of blood pump per heartbeat yeah uh, and um, uh, and and basically laying the conditioning foundation for the nine percent and the four percent but it's going to be hard in Singapore to find the terrain yeah uh, well the terrain that we run weekly we run at McRitchie yep and that's a key session so one McRitchie run is worth two East Coast runs East Coast is flat it's not going to really challenge your strength that's right there is a time to do it and the East Coast has got a lot of grass as well which which is great to run on because mm -hmm. that's going to help your soft tissue strengthen as well um, but uh, just running on the East Coast, you're not going to get strong. So you do need to get off-road and you, you do need to get do your uh, strength work. And even McRitchie um, in itself is not a whole lot of elevation. But if you include the stairs up to the treetop, the yeah. three, I think I counted 330 steps once. But then I never counted that number again. I got all <laughs> sorts of different numbers. But anyway, let's call it 300 plus steps. Yeah. And that really, uh, even if you can't run it and you have to brisk walk or walk it, there's a real upside in doing that because you're having to, uh, yeah, you're, it's really going to increase your strength. Not only that, but coming down as well yeah. is also... Um, a different a, muscle group. Exactly. Yeah, you're balancing things out. What about weights? Would you incorporate weight training into it? Yeah. Uh, so as a general rule for athletes, yes. So for anyone, for, for the younger ones, mm. and I'm getting... I'm, uh, in my 60th year, so I'm I'm taught when I say young, my definition of young may be uh, <laughs> maybe somebody who's 30. But uh, generally speaking, for for kids under 20, most of it's going to be body weight. Okay. Yeah, and actually for adults, body weights body weights real good. Okay. And I, I know that from our discussions, you doing CrossFit, you're doing a lot of body weight. Yes, but we also do quite a lot of weights. Yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. As a general rule of thumb, because this really opens the topic of mm -hmm. training based on your body age and training based on your body type. So as a general rule of thumb, as each decade goes by, you add one day of strength training at the gym or strength specific to your activity. Okay. So I'll give you an example. So strength um, training for cycling, for example. I could do strength sets, and typically what I'm trying to uh, trying to do uh, for most people have imbalances, and they're going to be stronger on one side, or they'll have different muscle groups that want to fire, and, and different muscle groups that don't want to fire. Mm -hmm. So it's our role to uh, to get everything moving when we're when we're doing gym sessions, and that's why we uh, we work with strength and conditioning people who can identify these weaknesses or running gait and so on. So we know what to prescribe rather than haphazardly just go and do gym. Right. Uh, and the other thing we can do is a strength specific activity to your sport. Mm -hmm. For example, we can ride a bike in a bigger gear, either on a resistance trainer or up a hill, up a long hill mm -hmm. where you're in a bigger gear. So the, uh, the, the muscular movement the biomechanics is very specific and you're layering on top of that strength right. as well. So riding a bigger gear up a, up a hill will create that very specific strength that we need for cycling. It's forcing the body to do something else. It, it yeah. is. Now bear, bear in mind that you might have somebody doing it uh, with a very uneven pedal stroke left to right mm -hmm. or a very uneven uh, pedaling of the of the circle where they're just pushing down but not pulling up as much as they could do so there's ways and means of measuring that these days with power meters and so on so we can get a little bit more a little bit smarter about the way we do it and the way we measure the whole biomechanical efficiency so yes big uh, proponent of strength training strength training in the swimming pool could be using paddles it mm -hmm. could be wearing a cotton t-shirt and doing your uh, uh doing your freestyle right 
I did. I did that resistance. exactly. I did mm. that to my team the other day, and uh, they uh, they hated me. At the end of uh, hundred meters, they they looked up at me, and I said, "How was that?" And they said, "I'm shagged," <laughs> or as Singaporeans say, "I'm shag," <laughs> without the yet <laughs> shagged on the end. Uh, but uh, they they all agreed it was a very valuable set. So the, there's a time and place to do that. You wouldn't do that with somebody whose biomechanics was not correct because you're, you're loading on poor biomechanics and somebody's going to get injured. Yeah, makes sense. So that leads me to, you know, the, our mandate as coaches. So did you compete after that, other than your walking competition, going back a little bit? Oh, yes. Uh, so that was a disaster. <laughs> anyway. Not really. It, would give you, it gave you a peek into coaching. <laughs> Well, um, but back in those, so I played 25 years of rugby. Okay. Uh, and because it's New Zealand, so age five, you start playing rugby. Other you grow up with it. Yeah, other countries, you'd probably be doing football or, or baseball or, or a number of other different sports. But it was very much part of our, our culture. And academics was kind of uh, a necessary evil, I'm going to call it. Because we, we still had to somehow make our make our way in life uh, and make our grades, but um, it, it was we really went to school first of all to play sport, and I didn't go to a sports school as such. Mm -hmm. Except ironically, the the school I went to, the high school I went to, which was Moriahau High in Christchurch in New Zealand, was the top basketball school in New Zealand for about seven years. So and that was kudos to the coach who identified the fact that we were never going to be a top-tier rugby school. So he thought, what can I focus on in order to create excellence? So well, we actually played basketball every Friday. Wow. It was almost compulsory. And so, yep, throughout school, there was a ball in the hand, and um, uh, it, it led to a, a, a lot of different, I think, a, an assimilation of a lot of different school, skills learning to hit a golf ball, um, appreciating. Uh, I remember the first cross country I, that they made us do, and there, there was a, uh, a pass time of 25 minutes. And the first one I did was 32 minutes. <laughs> and I thought I was fit, and I felt ashamed. And do you know what the, the phys ed teacher that I previously told you everyone was afraid of, who was a great guy, I must admit, he had a um, I appreciate his non-compromising standards. He made me come back after school and do it again. That's Same day. Wow. Same day. But you guys were young, so that was fine. 18 months later, I was running 18 minutes. Mm, there you go. It was something like four and a half k, or 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 thereabouts. So, um, and, and that was sometimes, yeah, you need to fail big, in order to go. You know what? I'm not good at this and what is it I need to do so you you for, for me it was a Forrest Gump moment yeah of whatever you tell me to do I'm gonna do because obviously I'm not good at this and quite frankly today I enjoy working with athletes that are Forrest Gumps and I'm not talking about people that blindly follow I want people to ask why, why are we doing this why are you structuring it that way yeah but there's a certain amount of it where they need to trust that this isn't three days, three weeks, or even three months. The journey is longer than that, and if we're architecting it correctly, it's going to be where you are in the next 18 months to two years. Mm. Yeah. So to put that in perspective, we've got uh, on, a, on our Triage team website, we've got a, an interesting graphic that has, it's a comparison. Buy some new wheels for the bike, <laughs> spend $3,000, and maybe get 90 seconds, or let's say it's three minutes improvement over 90 kilometers. So that's $1,000 a minute that you yeah. spend on your investment. Or coaching, average improvement in our team over six months is 25 minutes. So that's the huge. The, the, cost per, the cost per minute for the coaching is $50 versus the wheels is a thousand dollars a minute it's so also the results over the different results yeah. though 
and it's a resetting of priorities and focus on on the things that matter and doing uh, sometimes not doing so much the things you love because you're good at them and mitigating your weaknesses by learning to un peel back the onion start from scratch rebuild do it properly re uh, do all the prehab that you that's, need to that's do. That's difficult for a lot of people because that starts with acknowledging the fact that you you messed up along the way or it's not working. Yeah, sure. So what we see what we see in general terms in the marketplace is people that have been doing the sport maybe five to ten years mm -hmm. and they're still racing around the same times. So some of them may be doing it for different reasons. But uh, I look at the the folks that we tend to work with are looking at return on investment of mm -hmm. time. Yeah. They're, they're looking at fitness goals as well, mm -hmm. but they're looking at personal goals and it might it might be going from top 20 in their age group to top 10. Mm -hmm. And that would be a fantastic goal for, a, a, you know, based on the, the individual. Yep. Not everyone, not everyone's built for the podium because in triathlon, for example, we deal with a, a three sport race. Mm -hmm plus transitions yep. um, and you know, not everyone's built to be a runner, not everyone's built to be a cyclist on a windy course or on a hilly course, mm -hmm. not everyone's a great swimmer. But in triathlon we focus obviously on our strengths and then mitigate our weaknesses by, uh, by also trying to bring them up and there's, there's techniques that we use in order to have people improve and, and uh, some of them would be, for example, we, uh, we um, reallocate time each month um, disproportionately to focus on the weak discipline. Mm. So we call it a month of madness. We are all of a sudden, you're only doing two runs and two uh, cycles a week, but you're doing five swims. Right. And you're hitting, uh, you're hitting 12 kilometers plus. And 12 kilometers is a bit of a number, you know, uh, it's, we shouldn't necessarily focus on, uh, on the number of kilometers, but um, because the person's weakness might be kick in the pool, and actually, quite frankly, most people's swim weakness is their kick. Yeah. So their, their kilometers, if they're spending time on kick, they're not gonna be doing quite the distance, but the return on investment of time for actually getting better at kick is significantly higher than just going out and doing laps. Have, has coaching always been on the radar for you? Oh, look, I think it's a hobby gone wrong. <laughs> Quite frankly. And, and <laughs> I, I find myself biking down Tanramera Coastal Road, seeing someone pedaling incorrectly <laughs> and riding up alongside them and going, this person's going to think I'm, you know, really horrible. and. I politely interject myself and, and say, can I show you a video of yourself peddling? Because I've just filmed you. <laughs> Actually, this happened recently and the, the, the guy was the guy that I um, videoed and, and uh, he was very gracious. He said, oh yes, please. And so we pulled off the road in a safe place and I showed him the video and there was a whole lot of things biomechanically going wrong. And it, it was from spine to hips to leg length yeah. and a whole lot of things. And if he'd carried on doing that, he was going to do himself harm. Yeah. And if you, he was a triathlete, if he ran like that, he was just going to have some huge injury uh, and possibly even re resulting in surgery. So I, I can't let that, I, I feel there's a responsibility, even though people can say to me, mind your own business. <laughs> about how I pedal my bike. But really, I, I'm, I'm, our first mandate as coach is, is about wellness and health and keeping people out of harm's way. Now, uh, we also don't, well, I personally don't know everything about biomechanics. But the first thing that I need to do is spot something that's clearly wrong. Yeah. And then we work with uh, expertise from podiatry to physiotherapy and We've got people around us that it's we trust. It's a team, then. Yeah. It is people around us that are um, that, that are virtual partners to our team that we trust, and we, we, we trust their professionalism, and uh, we, we also trust. And we have a saying: when we see something going wrong with our team members, 
we have a saying that goes, an ounce of prehab is worth a pound of rehab. And, and part of it is when people are a little bit reluctant to do it and to spend the time unraveling things, you have a conversation along the lines of, you really love the sport, don't you? Yes, I do. Yeah, I love it. I live for the sport. Well, what if you couldn't do it for three months? Yeah, that would be very difficult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or in my case, following two surgeries, I couldn't run for three and a half years. Wow. And, uh, and not to say that I'm a, uh, so you know, part of my own journey was having a couple of malfunctions. Mm. And uh, I had my left hip replaced and I had spinal surgery as well. So this was unfortunately the, I'm the type of person I wouldn't want to coach. Yeah. Because I don't know the difference between healthy pain of fatigue and unhealthy pain. So I would, and that was a great learning for me to spot the people that can break themselves. So you push through that, uh, yeah. regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, arthritic hip because the cartilage had gone, and and now I have a, a beautiful metal one, and it, it, I can do uh, hip moves that like yoga, <laughs> advanced yoga moves with that hip because so you've upgraded. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I have. I sometimes tell people that there's a there's an engine in there as well. <laughs> but uh, kudos, kudos to the surgeon. But recently, when I went back to him, because I was avoiding going back, because uh, I never wanted to see him again, nothing personal, <laughs> but he said to me, oh, you're okay to start jogging again. So I needed to re-begin my journey. Not that I necessarily want to compete again, because I've, I've done more than 100 races. I don't really, uh, I, I don't really have any, any particular goals other than staying fit, healthy, mobile, because as you get on, mobility is the key thing, being able to move properly and being yeah. able to do certain things. Uh, so it becomes a different, um, I'm at a different phase and, and now it's really being fit enough to ride with the team uh, and uh, fit enough to swim, because when I'm swim coaching, I actually, I'm in the pool because you only see certain things standing at the edge of the pool. Yeah. But if you're in the water, you can see what the feet are doing. Uh, you can see what happens to people after they fatigue. Mm -hmm. Some of these things um, you, you cannot see if you're on, on the side yeah. of the pool. Um, but re-beginning the running journey, journey was a bit like uh, my back to school when I failed the cross country when I did 32 minutes when the pass was 25 minutes. But I've had to relearn to just begin in a very slow and methodical way of jog walk. Mm. And when you're unfit at something, there's a huge upside in your fitness. <laughs> and I, I was finding uh, some of the early runs a, as I was beginning back and, and re-educating all the soft tissue. And I was running mostly on grass because I lived next to the East Coast not quite ready for McGritchie yet, uh, that the, the cardiovascular demands on re reintroducing running was huge. And uh, nothing like I ever experienced when I'm riding hard on a bike. I would imagine bikes are a lot harder. Oh, uh, well, the, prob the problem is I've been biking for 53 years. Okay. And, and so it, it's, it's, it's a bit like an old swimmer as well. They can go and do a whole lot, and it takes a lot to move the needle. And whereas if you're doing something you're inefficient at, there's a huge upside. And that's why I always say to runners, there's a huge cross-training benefit in swimming. Oh, but I can't swim very well. Well, the point is, you're inefficient at it, so your lungs are going to work really well, and swimming's hypoxic. You can't breathe all the time. Yeah. So your lungs are forced to evolve and improve. Mm. And then you're doing something that's uh, a, a good, um, that's taking, it's weight bearing, so there's less load on your body. Um, so I, I kind of encourage swimmers and, and cyclists to throw a bit of swimming in their, in their off season as well, as well for that reason. But it, why did you choose triathlons? You know, from rugby? Yes. Well, well, I lobbed in, I came into Singapore here in, um, after New Zealand, I lived in Australia for a while. And then uh, I've been here 19 years. So um, 
Singapore 19 years ago was much different to from a sporting culture to what it is now. Um, I remember conversations with people at work 19 years ago that were along the lines of, what did you do this weekend, uh, this weekend just gone? And they would say shopping, eating, uh, movie. Yeah. And that's about it. Yeah. And then uh, as time went by, and uh, Singapore back in those days had a bit of a golf culture as well. There was a lot of golf shops and a lot of golf activity, people going overseas to play golf. Uh, and then uh, triathlon took off in the early, probably in the early 2000s, yep. uh, gradually, <coughs> as did running. And now today, uh, running events, uh, look at Stan Sharp Marathon, 70,000 runners. Yeah. It's huge. Um, triathlons probably peak here in Singapore at some of the local races are around 3,000. However, people are, um, are traveling for races. And there's plenty of races uh, nearby. For example, this weekend, there's a race in Bintan that we're at both from a coaching perspective, but also from a business perspective mm -hmm. with recovery systems, we're running the athlete recovery after the race. So there's lots of choice now. And, yeah. and we see this whole multi-sport thing morphing into things that are adjacent to triathlon like Spartan, Viper, Tough Mother, and so on. They're still multi-sport, right. but the distances may be a little different. The demands on the body might be a, a little different, like Spartan. Spartan's more suits, for example, probably more like the CrossFit body, whereas triathlon, having, uh, for, for anyone who's running, including triathlon, having guns, big biceps, is a waste of time. <laughs> it's just uh, unnecessary bulk that you're having to, to haul around. Sure, yeah. hey, hey, look at all the good runners, they're all skinny, right? Yes. And definitely. no, they, they probably could do five push-ups, but not, not uh, 20. And because it's a different, uh, there's a different demand on their body. Yeah, but why would you pick triathlon as a you know to coach? Just because you could coach so many different. Yeah, things. well, I, I got into the the sport first of all as an athlete, and um, although I didn't formally learn to swim until age 48, uh, growing up in New Zealand, we used to throw ourselves into the surf, and I'm not talking about flat water. I'm talking about you know one to two meter breakers. Yeah. And we'd swim out beyond the breakers and then we'd body surf back in and we spent a lot of time in the, at the beach in water that was probably, I'm going to guess, summertime would be 16 or 17 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So um, nothing like the 25 degree here. You know, it was quite a shock getting, get, getting <laughs> in the water, yes. So um, somehow, we, although I, I learnt a little bit at school, Somehow we could survive in the surf. and um, But what, what I discovered then coming into triathlon is uh, I, for, for my age group, I was a good swimmer. I was either first or second or top three out of the water. Then on the bike, because I'd biked for a long time, both um, road racing, velodrome, specialist time trialing, which is quite closely associated to triathlon. And then as a triathlete, a cyclist who took up triathlon as well, um, uh, I, I actually discovered I was a good swimmer and it's mostly body type. Mm. I, I would say I'd like to claim that, you know, yes, it was years of swimming, but it wasn't. I have skinny legs and broad shoulders. I sit in the water, I float in the water like a cork <laughs> and it's very easy to propel myself forward. Yeah. So some of swimming, well, Swimming's getting out of the way of water, yeah. and uh, different body types will have different uh, will, will have di a different time uh, with swimming and different strengths and weaknesses. Advantages almost. Yeah. yeah stocky stocky than. people tend to tend to have a bit of trouble because they sink. They're sinkers. So there's ways around it. You just need to get much better at cooking, uh, kicking. You need to in always engage your core with swimming. It's a it's a it's a core exercise from the get-go, as are, as is running, as is cycling. They're all core exercises, so uh, um, that, that's one of the things that I encourage my guys to, uh, to do when they're swimming. And with my swimmers, I've got, in our team, we've got a lot of different body types. And, and you, you clearly see that when you start using toys like a pool boy between the legs, some of them just fly. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, they're not dragging through the water like a, 
like a seahorse. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's ways around it. And swimming's a marginal, like like all our sports, swimming is a marginal gain gain. Once you get over the basics, just like running, just like cycling, then it's marginal gains. This journey of marginal gains. So when you started Triage, that was how long ago? Oh, okay. So Triage was uh, uh, I'm founder of Triage was Scott Larson. Yep. Scott Larson and I uh, co-own Triage. Mm -hmm. um, Triage was Scott's baby. He kind of gave birth to it. Mm -hmm. And then because he was quite busy with other things, he handed it to me. And then I grew it for a while. I think it was probably a year to 18 months. And then he had a little more time to come back in and, and co-run uh, sessions and co-run uh, co-run things. So, so that when did you start that though? Uh, it's in its tenth year now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's been it's been a long a long haul, and I think the thing that has carried us on this journey, uh, aside from uh, in in two weeks' time, we've got nine athletes going to the uh, Ironman seventy point three World Champs who have qualified. So we've got nine that are going. So um, that, that's a great result. It, it was results over time. We've probably had um, over the 10 years more than 100 podiums, but actually that's not how we measure ourselves. Okay. I mentioned earlier that um, our average improvement over six months for people that are following the program is 25 minutes over a half Ironman distance. Okay. And, and that's quantifiable. We, we can look back at the results and we know that that's uh, that's happening. So these these are people that are not looking at it three days, three weeks, three months. They're looking longer term, uh, and, and that's an appropriate way to look at changes and instigating changes in a healthy way in your body. So um, the journey for us has been uh, a very important thing. Is I'm going to use a Maori word here from a native language from New Zealand, and the words. Whakapapa. Okay. So whak, whak, uh, um is a word that means legacy okay. or ancestry. And we felt like we're creating a legacy with Triage and that our culture, uh, the culture of Triage is very important. And it's an inclusive culture. We have more than 20 nationalities. Mm -hmm. And it's a culture where everyone is expected to be a leader. So although everyone's doing an individual sport mm -hmm. and we're the coach, we're the coaches, mm -hmm. that they are leading and helping others and bringing others along. And I think that's been uh, one of the keys in our journey is that we have, uh, this is a very much part of our, our, our culture. And um, it's, it's something that we uh, jealously guard and, uh, and, and also very much encourage. So I, I believe that also coaching lots of different nationalities has been fun, uh, and, uh, but also there are some challenges there, and they're not always, challenges aren't always negative, by the way. Uh, for example, some of our nationalities, and I'm talking very generally, we have to hold back a little. We've got a lot of French, and they're super competitive, and they want to go hard all the time. <laughs> and they, they, they're, they're a very energetic bunch. And uh, so sometimes there is, uh, th there is something in, in within the culture that just drives them. Yeah. And, and we need to sometimes hold them back a little bit and have them train a little slower mm -hmm. in order to get the long-term gains. And uh, so having dealt with lots of, of course, there's always variations and, and exceptions based on that. It's also been fun being here in Asia yeah. and knowing that every year there's going to be fasting month. And we have around, um, or at, at times there's been up to 10 of our athletes have been fasting during, uh, during fasting month. And coming up with something for them during that month that was gonna move the needle forward from a uh, improvement point of view but wasn't going to break them. So uh, to give you some examples, we'd have them doing much less running mm -hmm. because from a dehydration point of view, it, it, fasting for 12 hours isn't 
uh, is, is actually good. I mean, I do most days I fast 12 to 16 hours. Yeah, intermittent fasting. Intermittent yeah. fasting. So that, that's, uh, that's relatively straightforward. The going without water is a, is a horse of a different color. Yeah. That is very difficult. And so we don't want to put them in, into a big dehydration hole. Okay. Uh, and we don't recommend they have any races that are during or close to the end of fasting month. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do recommend they, they focus on things that they can do to, to move the needle forward. For example, swim technique. Right. Nobody can swim as fast as they possibly could. And e even uh, Joseph Schooling is still working, working on being his best, for, for example, if I can use a, a local example, I'm sure that's true. Um, and he, he's looking to you know, win another uh, gold medal at the next Olympics. So we can all improve on our swimming. We can improve on our run technique without doing a huge volume, mm -hmm. but we can practice drills and do things that are uh, um, biomechanically related to improve our running and also do strength and conditioning work. And a lot of the stuff can be done indoors. Right. So they're not facing that humidity and they're not facing being hugely dehydrated. They can do turbo training on the bike indoors uh, after either before um, breakfast or, uh, or after sunset. Yeah. So this becomes also a very healthy approach to actually having an off season. Because in Asia, there's, uh, none. there's none. And you, you've lived in four season climates, and so have I. And in winter, the, the, you tend to wind back quite a bit because oh, yeah. it's cold and miserable, and it's, dark. It, and it's actually a good thing for your body. Whereas here, you can go on year, year in, month in, month out, no rest, no respite, and actually you plateau. Your, your body says, enough of that, I'm just going to hold you back now you're just doing dumb stuff and not really letting me recover and it's all this it's all the soft tissue needs to recover properly it's the the whole body at a cellular level needs you know needs a break and it's time to do something different in that month to mentally refresh as well which is hugely important how, do, how does your body adapt for people who are fasting i'm curious to know because sometimes it could work better yep ab absolutely and uh, look it's a I think it's a huge topic. I spent, um, I spent at least two years very on very a very strict keto approach. Yeah. Um, what what I what I will say as a as a headline to what I'm about to say is I think there's no one size fits all. Okay. And personal Makes sense. personal yeah. experience, mm -hmm. and I would say we're all experiments of one to a certain extent. Yeah. Now, what, what I have learned about intermittent fasting, because your body has two fuel tanks. It has the glucose one that, that will last two to three hours. It's about 2,000 calories. Mm -hmm. And it has the fat tank, which is around 40,000 calories. So it makes sense that if your body is better at accessing the fat, and if it defaults to going to fat first uh, as, a, as a fuel, fat has a much higher energy value. You can go and go and go. You're not having highs and lows in your energy throughout the day where you eat some rice, an hour later you feel like falling over and having a sleep, <laughs> sleep under the desk or at work or, or whatever. So you don't have these, these big highs and lows. But also from a fasting point of view, training fasted, and this is, uh, bodybuilders may disagree with this and that's fine. And I, I think people need to find their, what works for them. But uh, it, there's a lot of science to say that fasting, sorry, training fasted, your HGH levels, your human growth hormone, yep. are much higher. And it could be a factor of three to five times higher for males, and it mm -hmm. could be one to three times for females. So therefore, the results, the, the benefit of actually ex exercising faster, fasted is much higher. Interesting. All right, so I'm going to say it again. Experiment of one. <laughs> it does not work for everyone. It doesn't work for everyone, and I think there's a whole lot of other factors. So the, the amount of stress you have in your life is a huge factor, the, uh, including whether you're sleeping Well, properly. sleep would be the best 
recovery. Absolutely, yeah. it's top of the tree. Uh, so when I get messages from athletes at 11.30 at night, I message them back and say, why aren't you asleep? <laughs> because it's actually the hours before midnight that count the most. From based on your body's circadian rhythms, the most of the repair work is being done before midnight and ar around that period of time. So that's, that's essential for actually getting uh, the sort of quality you need to repair properly. And, and then also <coughs> talking about recovery, you've got recovery systems. Yep. So you want to kind of walk us through that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, well, I, I will. Um, yes, I, I'd love to. Um, so when you look at recovery, and I'll, I'll just make a, another comment on, on sleep. Uh, so the hours before midnight count the most, uh, as being the most valuable for repair. Uh, so a lot of that involves things like, don't take your iPad to bed. I mean, yeah. everyone does, I do, yeah. but not recently. I listen to audio books now, and I find that knocks me out, and I'm, I'm a goner. <laughs> and so that's my strategy, but, uh, but also, you know, I have people say, oh, but I get eight hours, you know, from midnight to 8 a.m., but that's not, that's missing the point. Yeah. That's missing the point. It's not as good as 10 to 6. Well, oh, but I can't get to sleep at 10 o'clock. Well, try getting up at 5 o'clock, because I tell you what, <laughs> I was up at 5 this morning to take some training, and I'll be knocked out by 9.30 uh, tonight. I'll be in bed fast asleep. What so, about diet? That was the other thing. I mean, there's always a common consensus that, the fitter you are, the yep. worse it is is your diet, just because you think you can eat anything. Yeah, that is, um, so I, I call this marginal gains. Yeah. And, and let's talk about recovery systems as yep, a marginal sure. gain, yep. and then we'll, we'll talk about all the things that I think, um, or, or uh, some of the things that I think make up marginal gains as well. So you, Kelly, you, you mentioned uh, rest and sleep as being highly important. Yes, it's the top of the triangle. Okay. Uh, so if you look at recovery, mm -hmm. um, traditionally people use the word rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation yeah. as recovery. Mm -hmm. So uh, sleep, we've touched on that, highly important and really nailing it because that's, that's that removes a whole lot of stress out of your life. And things that contribute to that stress may be work relationships and all those other sorts of things. So in a, in a perfect world, we'll be really nailing that sleep. I'll touch on ice for, for a moment because actually recent research has shown that the ice age is over. So um, what was thought ice was thought to be an enhancer to, uh, to the whole recovery, but in actual fact, it delays healing. Oh, wow. So first phase of healing, and we're talking about uh, recovery from training here, but also it, it may be recovery from surgery or people with uh, vascular issues like DVT, lymphoma, um, type 2 diabetics. Um, ice delays healing because the body's first phase, its response to training stimulus, for example, is inflammation. Yeah. Inflammation, to, to put it in simple terms, um, inflammation captures the junk, the bad stuff, and now your body will deal with it in its own sweet time. Mm -hmm. So your own sweet time may be different to mine based on a number of different factors. Yeah. And uh, so the, the other things that you can do um, to influence, influence that is compression. Mm -hmm. So traditionally when we think compression, we think of either a bandage or a compression sock. Uh, and in more recent, uh, uh, more recent days, we've had active compression which is what recovery system does. So um, imagine you're putting a full length boot on that goes from foot to the top of your thigh, mm -hmm. and then you plug it into a, um, a control unit yeah. that compresses from the foot all the way up sequentially up to the top of the thigh and then releases. Right. So that's what active compression is and recovery systems, we have a, a number of uh, different products, some of them are portable, some of them are for home use, some of them for hospital use, uh, some of them are for your thighs, your, what we call them your, uh, a booty cuff. So it's for your backside, your hip and your thighs. Yeah. Uh, so it's targeting for athletes, for example, 
the power muscles. So I, I have for I have this afternoon Singapore's fastest uh, woman sprinter coming in to um, to borrow a set off us for the Asia Games. Yeah. And so I'm going to just make sure that the the various sizes that we have fit her uh, properly because she's going to use it as a marginal gain mm. in between her four races. But the correct approach actually with active compression, the other one's elevation of course, uh, so ele elevating helps the blood flow back but with the active compression it's about 10 times the pressure of a compression sock. So a compression sock, to quote the vascular surgeons that I work with, you're not going to get any worse yes. but you're not going to get much better either because it's not really promoting a whole lot of extra blood flow and they're, they're around about 20 mmHg of pressure versus 250 for the active compression. So would you have electrical vibrations inside or frequencies? Anything that enhances blood flow is going okay. to be useful and, and uh, so um, some of that would be with active compression it's actually squeezing the whole uh, either the leg, it can be arms as well uh, or the hip and glute area so that is re very much promoting blood flow. So um, it, to use a word, it's actually lymphatic drainage. Yeah. So the, the spa and ladies... I was this, gonna say that. Yeah, this is ladies' secret business we're talking about because men aren't supposed to know about this, but we've, uh, with recovery systems, we've got a major spa chain very interested in our hip and glute cuff because yeah. it's targeting bums, tums, and thighs. Yeah. Now for an athlete, it's targeting the power muscles and their, their um, use case is a little different to someone who may be wanting to use it for slimming, for slimming purposes. Um, but um, yeah, so there's an example of marginal gains. Now nutrition is very much a marginal gain as well. Mm -hmm. Sleep is a marginal gain. Flexibility is a marginal gain. Mm -hmm. um, structuring your training right. Uh, periodizing your training is a marginal gain. Uh, all these things add up. And that's not the end of the list, though. You know, we we could talk on. You know, uh, we could talk about equipment on a bike oh, being yeah. a marginal gain yeah. and and those sorts of things. And um, uh, the more mature the athlete is, and the further they go, let's say we're dealing with someone in at day one, they haven't exercised for quite some time. Yeah. And three months later, they've had a huge increase in their fitness. So they've had the biggest improvement that they're going to get now for the rest of, uh, you know, that three to first three to six months mm -hmm. is going to be uh, exponential if they're training right. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it, from now on, it's marginal gains. Okay. And sometimes you need to take some steps back as well. For example, doing prehab work in order to um, improve your running biomechanics. Mm. So there might be muscles that are, are work overloading and muscles that are are not working at all. So there, there may be some steps back. And the mature athletes that we work with treat that as an investment phase yeah. rather than going about doing the same things and expecting a different result when they've plateaued. Um, the mental approach also is a marginal gain. It's How do you help with that? Because that's, that's the most variable and I think it might be maybe the hardest to change. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. Um, uh, well, look, we, we as coaches are psychologists, <laughs> uh, relationship counsellors and <laughs> all the rest of it. So part, I think part of understanding the athlete is knowing what their motivation is for the sport, first of all, because then we can hopefully keep them in a healthy place. Someone's an anchor. An anchor. Yep. Yeah. So you, you may you know, you may discover that somebody is entering the sport because they've got a, they're masking an eating disorder mm. and it's an excuse to eat a lot. Yeah. Uh, you may find it's self-esteem issues uh, where people are constantly trying to prove it, something to themselves. And look, I, I think there's elements of this about all of us, by the way. Oh, definitely. And you know, nobody's, nobody's immune to such things. But I, I think that one of the keys as a coach is to kind of identify what the intrinsic motivation is so that you, you can then uh, anchor the person in a healthy place uh, and keep them out of harm's way whilst promoting wellness, health, and all the things what, that we 
would hope that doing any sport would actually bring into somebody's life. In other words, add value, not subtract value. Yeah. Okay. So what are the three tactical or few tactical points you would give an advice to for athletes who might be coming to you fresh? Let's start with someone who's not really done much, um, but would like to get somewhere with it in the next six months or so. Okay. Let's assume the person is getting off the couch after a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, uh, body type and body age uh, play a role to how we treat them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for example, if we've got someone that needs to lose a bit of weight, uh, the best approach for running, for example, may be getting them to brisk walk for the first month or so, or jog walk, rather than setting any uh, distances like go out and run 5k, we would set a time. And not, not, uh, not a race against time, but we'd give them a, a, a time period in order to go and jog walk or even walk. Or even and it's a doable walk. time. Exactly. So yeah. we're, we're, not set, we're not asking them to measure their pace or how far they, uh, how far they went. Yep. Because here's a, here's a clue to all this. Your body doesn't clock kilometers. Mm it clocks time. Your body doesn't understand what a kilometer is. It understands effort and time. And in order to keep, keep, say, somebody who's a little bit overweight out of harm's way, we need to strengthen soft tissue. So getting them to brisk walk or jog walk on soft grass, just like I'm telling you about my uh, re-engagement with, I wouldn't even call it running, it's jogging. (laughs) But, um, uh, and approaching them, them in that way uh, would be a healthy place in order to lay a foundation. Also setting the expectation the foundation may be three to six months and um, helping them to identify healthy goals. Like having someone coming to you as a, as a year one athlete, mm-hmm. in other words, just at the beginning of their, their journey, saying by the end of this year, I wanna do a full Ironman we would reset that expectation in most cases. Okay. Unless that person had a huge background in, in athletics or sport at a huge base and biomechanical, uh, sound biomechanics, we, we would start to um, uh, re- create more realistic expectations of would doing- you say, Would you say maybe two years would be a more two, realistic? Two to three years, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, otherwise uh, you're setting the person up to, uh, you're putting them in harm's way. Okay. Yeah, and, and you need people to understand that they need to respect the training needed to do the distance that they're uh, intending to goal and intending to target. So I'll give you an example. Uh, let's talk about Distant, different distances in triathlon. Sprint distance, training, the training budget in hours per week, six to eight hours. Right. Uh, standard distance or Olympic distance, eight to 12 hours, and 70.3, 12 to 15 hours. And of course, if you want a podium, you're probably 12 to 20 hours. So I'm talking about, you know, gen, gen, in general terms here. Yeah. Full, full Ironman, 16 to 24 hours a week. Okay. Respect the distance yeah. that you're training for. I'm, I'm gonna give a, a story of um, someone I know, no names, uh, who um, we were working with some years back and his, his program, he was gearing up for full Ironman and he was totally underdoing his training. Not, okay. t- not turning up to key sessions and not putting, not respecting the distance. So instead of peaking the peak load during his uh, 24 weeks to full Ironman would have been 22 hours or thereabouts. He was probably only doing about 12. So half, just over half. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so not respecting the, the distance. So he went through the race. He bluffed his way through, uh, and. And, and, and not a great time, it, you know, it, it wouldn't be something that he was proud of. Yeah. Then within a month of finishing the race, he had an immune system breakdown and broke out in boils and put on 10 kilos, wow. which is your body uh, punishing you for yeah. disrespecting what you attempted to do by not preparing it properly. Yeah. 
and uh, that that was that was sad you know as someone who who really you know who doesn't want to see people in harm's way that was a, a very sad result what about someone who's done athletics who's maybe not at their peak condition and they've not really seen any improvements what's the first thing you would get them to do well um the first thing to do generically speaking is we'd get them to train slower okay most people train too fast what does that mean when you mean train slower oh, okay so earlier we talked about kind of a formula of 87 9 and yeah, 4 yeah, yeah. and that's a general formula but we've we've found it to be pretty accurate and so you're, by training slower, you have different energy systems in your body. The one, the energy system that you need to train the most is your strength endurance. You will only do it where you're training aerobically. So aerobically may mean, for someone who's been training fast all their lives, yeah. or doing short, um, spurts, short yeah. spurts, yeah. It, it may be training at 100 to 120 beats a minute. Oh, okay. And there's ways you can there's ways you can measure that. We can all, uh, you know, you can get ketone strips these days oh, to yeah. make sure that you're you're actually burning fat. There's there's different things you can do. Uh, so that for someone is a huge revelation. For a start, they won't be riding with the same people that they usually ride with because they ride too fast. Mm. They won't be running with the same people they uh, usually run with because they are they'll be running too fast. They'll be training, they'll be finding slower people to train with. And then three months later, they will be passing all their friends that were training fast in races. And they'll, their friends will be saying, did you buy something new for your bike? <laughs> when in actual fact, their, their strength endurance is in a much better place. And that is a foundational mechanism for the threshold and the VO2 max. To improve. Okay. So uh, personal experience, um, going through long training block of eight months of strength endurance, even without doing any threshold or um, uh, any uh, speed specific work, I was um, breaking my own personal bests and, and races. And we see this happening with athletes uh, as well that, that apply this to their training, that, that actually listen to what we're proposing. So in, um, in many cases, it's counterintuitive. Yeah, Train slower yes. because you'll go faster. Try selling that one to, to somebody that wants, you know, PB next week that started with you this week. <laughs> <laughs> what about podium finishers? Or the ones who are kind of top five and they want to get up to second and first? Yeah, Obviously yeah. First. Well, there was, a, uh, there was a young lady I, I coached a while back who's consistently getting fourth. Yeah. We're talking about triathlon here, so it's a four discipline sport. Yeah. Swim, bike, run, transition. So when we looked at her swim, it was okay. When we looked at her bike, it was okay. You know, it was within podium kind of category. When we looked at her run, it was okay. That was transitioning. Yeah, she was making a cup of tea or I don't <laughs> know what she was doing. Uh, in any case, she was putting socks on and uh, tying shoelaces when she could have been using elastic laces okay. uh, and um, standing still drinking whilst she was in tra the transition area. So just by changing that one thing, she was podium. Wow. So now we've got a category of athletes that we coached. I mentioned we have nine going to world champs, which is, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful result and hats off to them for doing the work. Some of these athletes came to us as good athletes. And when a good athlete comes to you, you know it's gonna be marginal gains. And you know if they don't listen, they're not gonna improve. Yeah. Because we, we had to reset some expectations with some of them about how they trained, because they were used to training a certain way. And to their credit, they, they listened, applied themselves, and you know, now they're going to world champs. And uh, so that's a, that's a different category. Of, of athlete and none of them are strong at all the disciplines but they manage to balance it all out so and and that's that's quite normal we're all built differently some of us are not runners some of us are yeah and and some of us are not great swimmers so you know that's that's a balancing act between the three so last question what's your ultimate goal oh um, live long and prosper 
<laughs> and what about the legacy? Ah, the leg. Oh, now you've, now you're uh, t t really telling me to d divulge. I, I think just like um, Arthur Lydiard saying to me in 1973, do something every day. When I'm 90 years old, climbing up one of the big climbs of my hometown, New Zealand, on the bike, maybe on an e-bike at that stage, I, I hope to still be able to do that. I, I hope to be able, still be able to have the biomechanics and the flexibility and the, the durability in, in my body. I, I think that's pers from personal goal is, is to set myself, is to not break myself, but keep myself in a healthy place. When I look at the legacy of our athletes as well, it's helping them to understand that as time goes by, they may not get any faster. In fact, quite frankly, going from their 30s to their 40s to their 50s, they will most probably slow down. Yeah. But if they stay healthy, if they stay there or thereabouts with everything that they're doing, they're still going to be very competitive. But remember that the sport is actually... Uh, designed to enhance your quality of life and not leave you with uh, two major surgeries, in my case, and leave you in a place where it actually adds value to your life and not, uh, not detracting in any way, shape or form. So I think that's part of the legacy is to really help people to enjoy what they're doing, to uh, help them achieve goals, set and achieve goals that they didn't think would be possible by breaking it down into small steps and I, uh, I think that's sort of something that keeps me going. I love working with people that are very keen to learn. It really energizes me. Oh, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it, uh, it, that keeps me going.